0: Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for remembering my birthday, and for many who would wish me those uh, good wishes, Father, that's a blessing, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Father, for many friends, many who have been a part of this study for many years and other studies along the way, others who have been encouragement and support to the ministry and to me personally for many years, Father, and on a birthday, it's uh, easy to remember all of those things and to be Uh, To uh, take note of all of those blessings. It's a good time to remember those you put in our lives to help us and to guide us and to encourage us. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. And Lord, I thank you for, more than anything, the encouragement and the guidance of your word. It is your word, Father, that makes us who we are and has uh, distinguished us from all humanity and that has uh, brought us to know you in a true and lasting way. And it is the continued study of your word, Father, that you say will will raise us up in the likeness of your son so that we would be like him. We understand one day, Father, you complete that work as only you can in a glorified body. But in the meantime, we attain to the, to the stature of Christ so that as we move into that new world and that new body one day, the spiritual maturity we bring with us will be that which we obtained under your tutelage here, Father, now as a follower. And so this is not wasted time. We know this is not, um, it's not time, Father, that won't be rewarded in how it leads us into a closer walk with you. And so, Lord, thank you for this opportunity tonight to study, along with all the others you've given us over the course of the time we've been here. Let it be uh, to your purposes, Father, that we would grow, that we would be useful to you, and uh, that you would teach us things, Father, that, that only you can so that we can serve you as you richly deserve to be served. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you don't remember where we were, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. We work and serve a God who can conquer death, for whom death is not a barrier. How much differently would we feel about life If we did not know that about the end, that death is not a barrier, that the body will die, yes, but a new one will come along. And this is not the end of us. This is only the beginning. How different is life? Because we know that Lazarus has experienced that firsthand. And so have all those who watched. It was arguably his most impressive miracle when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And as I think I've said in the past, it was one of three miracles that had been taught to the Jews to be signs of the Messiah, So now that Jesus has accomplished something undeniably supernatural as he's raised someone from the dead, and something, by the way, that's also beyond the Pharisees' ability to contradict, for everyone has seen it, because of that, the Pharisees know they now have to act against Jesus. These men, as you might already know, are unbelievers. When we say the Pharisees, we're talking about men who were Jew, who represented the nation of Israel as religious leaders, and yet were unbelievers. Jesus uses a phrase in Revelation when he says in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is a description Jesus uses of this same type of person. They think they are representatives of God, but in reality, they are representatives of Satan. And they detest the idea of someone like Jesus coming along to steal away the hearts and the minds of the people that they want to have power over. So in the last part of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, John records how Jesus's death was planned by the Jewish leaders, largely as a result of what he's just done now in raising Lazarus. So Lazarus's resurrection is the straw that breaks the camel's back and brings about the end of Jesus's life. Look at verses 44 through 53 as we end chapter 11 first. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. As I read last week, Lazarus came forth from the grave in that dramatic display of Jesus' power over death. Clearly, the one with the power to raise the dead is divine by any definition, so only the Creator himself can possess the authority of life over death. That is the unique assignment of the Creator. Whoever can take the dead and make them alive again is proving himself to be the one who has the power of life. As John reports, many of those who had come up from Jerusalem to support Mary and Martha in Lazarus's death at the morning of Lazarus. Now they are becoming followers of Jesus as a result of what they've seen happen in this moment. They're transformed by the miracle of what Jesus has done. And they come to Jesus because they correctly recognize that what I just saw proves to me Jesus is Messiah. But as you just heard, there were others in the crowd and these others are not persuaded We now know from what John has taught in past chapters, the reason they're not persuaded is they're not among Jesus's sheep. Instead, they belong to the enemy. And as a result, they see this display as a threat. And so they immediately go back down to Jerusalem to report what they've seen to the Pharisees concerning Jesus. Now, if there was ever any doubt concerning the hard hearts of the Pharisees, you're going to see it clearly now in this little exchange we just covered. These men notice they have no doubt concerning the story that they hear about Jesus. There's no conversation to investigate the truth of the matter. They agree with what has happened. That's the problem. The problem is they do believe what's happened. They convene a council because they know this compelling act is going to be the thing that finally puts Jesus over the top. And they now need to come up with a plan to respond. In fact, one of them says, if we let Jesus continue on in this way, many will believe in him as the Messiah. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what is happening. And for good reason. You should hear those words as spoken from the mouth of Satan, for they truly were. Though a nameless human being made that statement, it was Satan himself who authored it in that person's heart. Satan could not stand the prospect of Jesus convincing the world to follow him, something has to be done to stop Jesus. And these men, as, as the pawns of the enemy, become the instruments to see that through. Now, on a human level, speaking of it just from the perspective of the Pharisees themselves, on a human level, the primary concern here is political. If Jesus gained a large following, which he's evidently on the road to doing, then a revolution is a likely outcome from that kind of a movement. The people of Israel would presumably have rallied around Jesus as their new king and used him to threaten the rule of Rome much like the Maccabeans had done a century and a half earlier, they used the opportunity of one man's uprising to create the momentum necessary to put out an oppressing force. Predictably, what would have happened after that, of course, was that the Romans would have responded with overwhelming force to put down that rebellion, which they later did in A.D. 70 as a result of another rebellion. And in the process of all of that, the Pharisees would have lost their privileged position as religious leaders over Judea, By the way, the kind of autonomy they had in exercising authority within Judea was something no other province in Rome had. There was something very unique about Judea. Only Judea had a degree of self-rule in all of the Roman Empire. And the reason was an accommodation to the stiff-necked nature of the Jews. The, The Romans had figured out by experience that if you didn't give them some room to operate within the temple and their own religious law, they would never find peace, that the Jews were literally uncontrollable otherwise. So they made an accommodation they had never made for any other culture. But even then, there was still a limit. And so the Pharisees enjoyed this little bit of freedom they had and this, this little sandbox in which they got to be in charge. And they knew that if there was anything to upset the boat, they lost everything. So out of a desire to preserve their political power, the Pharisees now are saying, we have to do something to stop this guy. What's interesting about this, of course, is that they were trying to stop the very revolution, which would have freed their own nation from an oppressor. But then again, a revolution brings a change in power, and they would have been on the outside looking in. Now, after all of that initial discussion, at this point, you see Caiaphas, who is the high priest of Israel at this time, make a prophetic declaration. Although, as you heard John say, this is not one that he was realizing at the time was inspired by the spirit, but yet it was. He rebukes his comrades and he calls them know-nothings, literally in the Greek, He was high priest that year, but he had received his office from Rome because of his allegiance to Rome, to the Caesar. He had replaced his father-in-law, a man named Annas, who you'll hear mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. Annas had refused to concede authority to the Romans, so the Romans deposed him. And they found some other guy who was willing to stand in in his place, another Jew that they could prop up as their puppet high priest. And they went to his son-in-law because at least they could tell the Jewish people this guy is in the line of succession. And they threw him into the position. While Caiaphas held the title, the people in Israel, for the most part, still saw Annas as their true high priest, which is why when Jesus goes through the trial, you see him talk not only to Caiaphas but also to Annas because they gave Annas equal deference. Nevertheless, at this moment in the Sanhedrin council, Caiaphas is the one seated as the position of authority as high priest, holding all the cards, running the show. And when he interrupts the debate, he says to the council, They have to stop arguing and they have to start thinking. And specifically, what are they going to do about this problem? And his solution is, it is expeditious for one man to die in order to save the entire nation. And of course, what he meant was we kill Jesus and we stop this whole train that we're worried about and we get our nation back without seeing it destroyed by the Romans, in other words. But of course, what John tells us is these are not the words of one man. These were the words of the spirit speaking through him prophetically about Jesus being the one who would die to save Israel in a spiritual sense. Initially, that spiritual saving is for the penalty of sin. That is his atonement on the cross. Ultimately, though, down the road, Jesus's death is a means to save the specific nation of Israel, physically speaking, in that he will make way for them to enter into the kingdom upon his second coming. And of course, as John says in verse 52, not just this nation, but notice what he says. And particularly in the way John chooses to phrase it, he says in verse 52, not only for this nation, but in order that he, Jesus, might also gather together. Look at the words gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What's so interesting about that is he did not say in order that he might go make children or that he might persuade people to become children. They're being called children now, even in advance of them hearing and believing in the gospel, which is further evidence of what John has said all along. They are predestined. They have been selected in advance by God. They're just out there somewhere to be gathered at an appropriate moment when the gospel reaches them. And that group is going to be gathered into one over the course of the history of the church and until the time the kingdom enters. But of course, Caiaphas, you know, he has no idea that his words carry all of this significant prophetic meaning. He's very much like the donkey in the story of Balaam, who spoke by the power of the Spirit, but had no idea what he was saying. A sober reminder, by the way, for any Bible teacher. So this is proof that God can use anything and everyone at any time as he sees fit. Now, from this point forward in John's Gospel, we are now entering the passion of Christ. We're entering the period of of his end, the, the last week of his life on earth. So you can see how much of the gospel John devotes to that part of Jesus's ministry relative to the synoptics. It's a much greater percentage. That's where his focus will be from this point forward. So from this time onward in John's gospel, we're going to see the plot to kill Jesus take shape and Jesus's own preparation for what he knows is coming. All of this in the course of the week of Passover and the days that lead up to Passover. Certainly these men, these Pharisees wanted to take Jesus down A long time ago, it's not as though this is their first interest in doing so, but it was the high priest's declaration that Jesus must die that solidifies the plan, that makes it official and to some extent gives them cover to go pursue it. It would simply now be a matter of time and opportunity before their plan came to fruition. And as we've already heard, the timing was not a matter of their will, but of God's will. It's not even a matter of their own creativity. All of this is going to be orchestrated as God sees fit. We have no better evidence that these men were far from God and not his representatives, then to see their hearts revealed in this decision. As Jesus said, they are murderers, just like their father, the devil, as he spoke to them earlier. They have harbored murder in their heart long before they got a chance to act on it. And on the occasion of Lazarus' raising, that now gives them the cause to pursue what's been in their heart. Now, 54 Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, He was to report it so that they might seize him. Now, at this point in his ministry, Jesus alters his methods dramatically. We might suppose that he learned the Sanhedrin's plot to kill him from some sympathetic member of the Sanhedrin. Maybe Nicodemus passed word to him. Somehow else he heard about it. But whatever the case, as he heard how serious the circumstances had become, John says he retreats from the public eye. And it's not because Jesus is afraid of these men or their ability to accomplish this task. He knows exactly what's going to happen and when. Rather, he wants to be sure that they accomplish it according to God's purpose. In other words, he doesn't want it to happen prematurely. So he withdraws from the public eye and literally hides himself for the dead of winter roughly three months from the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is in the last moment we saw him, until he reemerges in the week of Passover. So for three months, he retreats to the wilderness where John the Baptist ministered traditionally, off the beaten track, a kind of lonely outpost, a winter of discontent, you might say. And he hides himself waiting for the right moment to reemerge. And then in verse 55, John jumps forward in his narrative to the arrival of Passover in the springtime. This is the Passover in which Jesus will be killed as the Lamb of God. And though we're, as I said, only halfway through the gospel, we're now into the final week of his life. And as we hear, Jews return to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. And many have come now and they're wondering, is Jesus going to be there as he should as a Jewish man? They'd expect to see him. They last saw him at the Feast of Dedication. They haven't seen or heard of him since then. No doubt there's been people looking for him, especially after all that happened with Lazarus. And now they're asking, is he not even going to bother to show? For the same reason, the religious leaders are giving orders. They're saying, if anyone knows where this guy is, you tell us. We're going to seize him. Remember, in this period of history, it was relatively easy for someone to disappear. No cell phones, no video cameras, no way to track someone, no TVs. So it required considerable effort to pass word around about where somebody was. Even if you saw them here today, you wouldn't necessarily know if they'd be there tomorrow when the word finally got around and people came looking. So it was relatively easy to stay out of sight. So the Pharisees depended on informants and more than just informants, they needed someone who was willing to betray Christ and had firsthand knowledge, not only of his whereabouts, but of his movements so that they would even be in a better position to predict where he would be at a given time so that they could find him in that place. Without that kind of insight, it was going to be really hard for the Pharisees to ever narrow Jesus down unless Jesus wanted to be found. He's not going to be found very easily. Having set the scene for his death, John now moves into that final week, chapter 12, verse one, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. A beautiful scene to open chapter 12. In the year of Jesus' death, the day of Passover was on a Wednesday. If you remember, you probably know this, but the Jews counted their days as starting at sundown and continuing until the following day's sundown. So the day of Passover in this year began at sundown on a Wednesday and continued until sundown on Thursday. And in this case, you hear him saying six days before Passover. Six days earlier then would refer to the Friday of that week prior to the week he dies. And on that day, Jesus is traveling back toward Jerusalem for the Passover. The Synoptic Gospels record many of the events that transpired during that walk, during that time that he travels back to the city, including the triumphant entry, which is what John now describes in this chapter, the entry we call Palm Sunday. But before Jesus reaches Jerusalem, He pays a visit to Mary, Martha, and they're now very alive, brother Lazarus. We find Lazarus reclining with Jesus while Martha and Mary serve, although in different ways here. This scene is in the home of a man who was a former leper cured by Jesus, a man named Simon. So it's in Simon's home. Mary and Martha are serving in that home. Jesus and Lazarus are reclining. So this home, we have gathered two of the three beneficiaries of those Messianic miracles, John's repeating Lazarus's name at multiple places along in this narrative. Some I've read, some yet to come. Later in verse 10, for example, all of those seem to suggest that there's a degree of notoriety now for for Lazarus. He's become a bit of a rock star all in of his own because of what's happened to him, such that now people seek him out almost as much as they would seek out Jesus, which is understandable. But now Jesus being there, he's clearly the center of attention. And we know the disciples are there as well. When men are said to recline at the table in this day, tables were on the ground. So to recline at the table meant you lay on the ground. And you lay with, typically you lay on your left elbow with your body stretched outward behind you, behind the table. The table being in front of you, you leaning on your left elbow, eating with your right hand. And if you had several people at the table, they fan out like this around the table. If you were to look at it from above, it might look like a flower. So the feet are all on the outside edge and the faces are all inside and everyone's on the ground. That's how people reclined. The, the famous painting of Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper is completely historically wrong. They were on the ground, fanned out around a, a table that was on the ground. Then, while they're reclining, waiting for the meal to be served, Mary takes the initiative to anoint Jesus. And she does it in this very unique way, using a very valuable perfume. Mary approaches from behind them, from Jesus' feet, begins to anoint his feet, which would have been the only part of him that she could have reached easily, at least initially. She uses a valuable perfume, we're told. The name is nard, which refers to an oil made from the roots of the nard plant, which is found only in India. And John says it's pure nard, which means it was particularly high quality, highly refined. Well, such a fine imported perfume would have been Very expensive then, as much as it would be now if you were to try to find something of that sort now. In fact, we might even say it's more valuable then than it is now. In Jesus' day, bathing was not common, and so the smell of an unwashed body was not uncommon. Therefore, perfume was all the more valued for its ability to mask odors. In Greek, in the literal Greek, John says Mary retrieved a liter of perfume, and a liter was a Greek measure of about 11 ounces. So that's an extravagant amount of perfume, much as it would be today. So imagine if you would today, somebody taking the equivalent of a Coke can full of fine French perfume and then pouring that out. That's what she's doing to anoint Jesus. And as you can imagine, that much perfume fills the air with the aroma, which is what we hear described here. So she's taken this immense amount of valuable perfume and she's used it like water. To wash Jesus' feet. The other Gospels, by the way, record that at the same moment she also anoints his head in this scene. So she starts at the feet and she would have moved, I guess, to his head. Perhaps she covered half his body in the process. Who knows? There was certainly enough perfume to do that. The anointing of the head would connote Mary's desire to honor him at the head. And then the feet would emphasize her humility in being able to wash the feet of Jesus' After she washes his feet, then the last step, she uses her own hair to dry off the perfume. In Jewish society, a woman never let her hair down. It was a disgrace for her to do so. It was shameful to show the full length of her hair, to to not keep it covered. So not only is she making a huge financial sacrifice to lavish Jesus with this perfume, but she is humbling herself in the process, taking shame upon herself as it were to serve him. Mary is a testimony to one of Paul's better-known statements out of Romans, which is Romans 12.1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I think this is really a good example of that kind of thinking. Mary thought nothing of giving up what was easily her most prized earthly possession so that she can honor and glorify the Lord. But her response isn't merely charity. She's responding to the Lord's blessing in her life. In this day, when a family lost the man of the home, which is what Lazarus is for Mary and Martha, the remaining women would have most often been left destitute. They would have had great difficulty making ends meet, and eventually every valuable possession they own would have been traded for the necessities of life. In Mary's case, the Lord restored Lazarus to life which then ensured that her family would not be without the provision they needed and therefore offering her perfume to Jesus would have been a small sacrifice in light of the great blessing he has been to them through Lazarus's resurrection in other words she was going to lose this perfume one way or the other as the circumstances played out much better to have given it up to Jesus than to have had to trade it away in poverty but not everyone in the room thought her act was appropriate verses four through eight but Judas Iscariot One of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you. But you do not always have me. So some of the disciples object to what Mary does. I think it's a waste. John records Judas's objection, but if you were to go look at Matthew and Mark, you see them mentioning disciples plural, objecting to the extravagance. So Judas's remarks here are simply representative, but he's the focus in John's gospel for an obvious reason. Judas remarks that the perfume would have fetched 300 denarii, which In relative terms for you and I, that represents about a year's salary for an average working man in that day. So assuming Judas's estimate is correct, we're talking here, let's say roughly $50,000 might be an average salary for a working guy today. I'm not sure what you consider working, but let's just use that round number. So imagine watching someone pour a $50,000 bottle of wine down the drain. Or burning $50,000 in cash in the fireplace to warm your house. That's what he's saying he just watched happen. To see such a thing, you and I might react very much in the same way, wouldn't we? At least for a second, though, multiple disciples expressed the concern. John chose to single out Judas because his protest is the height of hypocrisy. It was especially revealing of his heart, which is why John wants to point him out and highlight him in this moment. Judas says that money should have been given to the poor. John clarifies that Judas isn't saying this because he has a heart for the poor. Instead, it's because he was a thief and he stole out of the group's money box. It's just an interesting thing, by the way, to even note that the group had a money box. There's a great lesson of finance in ministry embedded in this, which we honestly don't have time for. But give some thought to the reality that even Jesus and the disciples were clearly contributing to some common pot from which they must have been paying for their needs on a regular basis. How did they find that money? Where did it come from? Why did they keep it? The fact that they even had a treasurer appointed. There's some principles embedded in here that I think are useful and help guide us away from extremes, either that of too much emphasis on these things, but also from the extreme of not enough emphasis on these things. There's a a role for this in ministry. And even Jesus had fundraising going on, at least at some level. The one mistake was Judas was the group treasurer. That was probably the biggest mistake. He had easy access to the money. Now, remember, back in John 6, We already covered back there the reality that Judas is not a believer. More than that, Jesus selected him to be one of the apostles for the reason that he was not a believer. You remember when he was speaking to the disciples and they were saying, we have chosen to follow you. And he said, did I not choose you, the 12, pointing out correctly that they thought they had chosen him when really he chose them. And then Jesus goes that step further and says, and one of you is a devil speaking of Judas Iscariot. He consciously chose a man who he knew was not one of his sheep, who the father was not intending to call into faith so that there would be within his inner circle that necessary betrayer who at the right moment could be used by God through Satan to put Jesus on the cross. For if all 12 had been truly believers, none of them would have turned their own Lord in under any circumstances. There had to be that betrayer. So this is an intentional act on Jesus' part to insert the devil into the inner circle. This scene offers us, I think, a glimpse into the heart and motives of unbelievers who adopt forms of godliness or associate themselves closely with believers as Judas did here, and yet, as Paul says, deny the power of God. Paul says... They adopt a form of godliness while denying its power when he writes to Timothy. Judas, I think, is a typical of that kind of a person. Judas did not know Jesus as Lord, for that knowledge lay outside his spiritual reach. He couldn't get there if he tried. But nevertheless, he portrayed himself as one interested in the plight of the poor. Yet in reality, whatever good works he was portraying himself to have an interest in, they were merely self-serving. In this case, it was a means to getting money out of the box. And in his art, he remained wicked, hypocritical, and self-centered. The unbelieving world operates in this same way every day. Different motives for different purposes, but always with this same basic approach. Ungodly men and ungodly women who do not know the love of Christ will commonly express concern for the needs of humanity. You see this left and right. They want to see the poor fed. They want to see humanity uplifted, or at least they say they do. But we know from the nature of their heart that they are speaking out of a hypocritical or selfish motive, whether political power, whether social credit, whether ego, whether financial gain. There's something deep down inside that drives their interest, which is not ultimately an agape love, for that is a kind of love that you cannot have unless the Lord gives it to you by the Spirit. It's the type of love that only comes from God. It's these people Paul speaks about when he says that depraved men, deprived of the truth, Suppose that godliness is a means of gain and because of their selfish interests, they work to solve the wrong problem. They want to solve the afflictions of others without appreciating their own spiritual poverty, their own spiritual jeopardy. Judas, for example, thought that the purpose I'm making an assumption here based on what Judas has said. He assumed that the purpose of Jesus's ministry was to empower humanity, either socially or politically And that was a completely wrong understanding of what Jesus had come to do. Naturally, if you don't know Jesus as creator, then the only thing you can assume about his purpose is earthly. He has to have some earthly goal. Otherwise, why would he be doing what he's doing? There's no other reason. Jesus turns to him, and this is where we see the Lord's perspective on this. He defends first the anointing as he speaks to Judas. He declares it is purposeful and it is necessary for his sake. He says specifically, let Mary alone, which is a way of saying, Do not criticize her. And then he says, allow her to keep it for the day of the burial. And that translation is a really confusing translation. A better way to translate his words from Greek to English would have been, leave her alone for the day of my death. She has done it. Jesus is saying Mary did what she did as preparation for his day of death. She's basically anointing the body of Christ pre-death. In Jewish tradition, mourners would anoint the bodies of the deceased after death. But remember, Jesus is going to be buried in haste prior to sundown on the Passover. So there's not going to be the time for a proper anointing. There's barely enough time to wrap a few bandages around him and a little bit of spice and throw his body into the tomb to get home before the sundown. And then you can't do work once the sundown occurs because the day that followed was a Sabbath. So Jesus says Mary is performing his anointing in advance. So let her do it. And. For that kind of anointing, to anoint the body of the Messiah who will give his life for the sins of the world, there is not enough costly perfume in the whole world to suffice for that anointing. Of course, at the moment he says this, no one can understand that Jesus is only days away from dying on a cross. And yet Mary still anointed him. It's interesting, just as when you see Caiaphas being directed by the Spirit to speak things he didn't understand, I think it's fair to say that Mary, though she would have been moved by her compassion for Christ and her appreciation, nevertheless, I don't think she could have understood the significance of what she was doing in the moment. She couldn't have understood this was a pre-burial anointing. She was acting out of a thankful heart and out of conviction. But as she obeyed the Spirit's movement in her heart, what happened? She was misunderstood and criticized by onlookers, and not just Judas, by the other disciples, men who knew the Lord. Believers are often misunderstood this way. When you follow the conviction of your heart, led by the Holy Spirit, expect to confuse people, even some believers. Mary had just traded the wealth of her lifetime for a spiritual blessing. And from an eternal perspective, those actions made perfect sense. To the spiritually enlightened, to you and I now seeing this in hindsight, we get it. But they didn't. They couldn't. Whenever you step out to love, glorify, and serve the Lord as a conviction of the Spirit, you should expect to be called by God to trade earthly things for spiritual things. And those actions make sense to believers who live with eyes for eternity, but they will confuse the world to no end a world that only understands the material. Immature Christians for whom the world is still an attractive place will have a hard time understanding. In fact, they will tend to encounter a degree of conviction over watching what you do when you listen and obey in those ways, and they'll have a hard time reconciling it. Are you the one who's wrong or are they wrong? Are you the zealot or are they the laggard? And that kind of conviction is useful in their life. But don't let that friction, whether it's from the unbeliever or from the believer, Bring you any doubt about what you're feeling convicted to go do sell your possession, move away to a faraway place to serve the Lord and watch how people think you're crazy. Turn your back on advancement and power and wealth in your job to live a humble and simple life and you'll be dismissed as a zealot or a lazy unachiever. Decline to join in great works of social justice and equality so that you can preach the gospel to the few who have ears to hear and you're painted as heartless or uncaring. Notice Jesus says you will always have the poor but you won't always have him. Now, in this context, we understand Jesus isn't diminishing the plight of the poor, but he is setting things in their proper priority. Of course, the Lord cares for the physical needs of humanity. He says as much elsewhere. In fact, the Bible says he brings the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. He goes even beyond simply caring for the needs of those who should see his love. He even presents it to those who shouldn't. But Jesus did not come to earth to solve the problem of man's physical poverty. He came to solve the problem of our spiritual poverty. So Judas's comment turns this whole priority upside down. He is suggesting that endeavoring to solve the problem of world hunger is more important than advancing the work of glorifying Christ. In theory, if we, the church, spent all our time solving the problem of world hunger, we might presumably achieve that end. But we would not have spent time then as a result. We would have used our time over there and instead not used it to spread the gospel, which is what puts souls in heaven. That even if the whole world were to become fat, dumb, and happy, they would still spend eternity in hell, right? We understand that. Jesus says we will always have the poor, which means that the opportunities to minister to the needs of the human condition will never be exhausted. Mankind could solve world hunger and you'd still have cancer. Mankind could solve cancer, and you're still going to have violence and abuse and countless other tragedies that mark our fallen world. You cannot solve them all. There is no solution to them apart from Christ. So ironically, to spend your time glorifying the name of Christ among the nations rather than to spend it feeding the poor is actually better for the poor. So don't make it your life's goal to solve the human condition through physical solutions. Jesus says you'll always have the poor not to discourage us, not to diminish their importance, Not to even discourage us from helping as we can, but to keep our priorities straight. He says, you will not always have Jesus. Now, what he means literally to the disciples, of course, is once I die, then you can go about feeding the poor if you need to. Right now, it should be about me while I'm here. But he also meant it spiritually. And that is to say, we only have so long on earth to represent Christ. How many days are you going to spend feeding bodies? How many days do you want to spend feeding souls? And the world itself at large only has so long to know, believe, and accept Christ before you die. So in all senses, Jesus is a window that closes. It closes in eternal terms, it closes in personal terms, and it closes in in the sense of the body dying. There is only so much opportunity. We should not think lightly about the fact that he is here and the problems of social justice and the like will never go away until his second coming. So don't get distracted in solving earthly problems. Remain focused on glorifying Christ. Humble yourselves in service to him. Make your life a living sacrifice to the praise of his name. Now, while Jesus is eating at the house, because he's come out of hiding, a large crowd hears and begins to gather to see him. Verse nine, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So, as I said, he was off the radar for several months and now everyone's excited to find him. But not just him, also Lazarus, this guy who's become sort of a local celebrity because of the nature of this moment. It would seem to me that both of them have been in hiding and that now they've both come out and now they're both available for the crowds and the crowds are coming to see him. What you notice, though, is that Lazarus' fame has put a big bullseye on his chest now as well with the Pharisees. The movement has gained such serious momentum and it's scaring the religious leaders that they're willing to take down anyone and everyone they need to in order to put an end to it. And they're going to stamp it out, so they're going to kill both of these guys. Another great example of what happens when you live for Christ. This is a man who, who, not for anything he did necessarily, but as a result of his relationship with Christ, is known known as a man for whom Christ did something miraculous, and now he represents that power. And in much the same way, we will see that same opportunity from time to time, not necessarily from resurrection, but in other ways. And as you represent the power of the Lord who saved you, you should expect that that will, in some cases, draw people to you, in some cases to get to know Christ through you, and in other cases to throw rocks at you, uh, so to speak. These come in tandem. You cannot have one with the other. You cannot be an effective witness for Christ such that you persuade others to the truth of the gospel while at the same time not becoming a target for Satan. In fact, it's my premise based on what I read in Scripture that if you are not persecuted for your faith, then you're not living your faith. Because it's the ones who are standouts in that respect who receive The enemy's attention and it's not just that you would see someone knock on your door and drag you away to the police station It can be in other ways, too The enemy can bring disease and trauma and emotional pain and family turmoil and financial stress I mean the enemy has capability to move things in this world in many different capacities But whatever that is he will bring it and that becomes your test And god allows it so that that test can grow you in strength and the cycle continues The next day marks jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, this will be the last scene we look at for the day. Verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus mentions a crowd that had come to Jerusalem for the feast, referring to this feast of Passover, of course. As I mentioned, this is one of three feasts in the calendar year in which Jewish men of Israel were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it there. And in many cases, they brought their family with them for the feast of Passover. So as a result, the city of Jerusalem, this little town, would swell to several million inhabitants on this one week. And the crowd then, as you might imagine, had to spill outside the city. They would camp in the surrounding area, the countryside, the little towns. The whole area would be filled. It's quite a scene. And it's into all of this excitement that he enters for the final week of his life. The intensity of the crowds and the devotion of interest they had in Jesus and in Lazarus contrasts very starkly with the Pharisees' intense hatred of the same. Clearly, that conflict is going to bring a climax here soon. Everything is, is peaking to this point And that's intentional. Now, what follows in this moment, the the moment we call the triumphant entry or Palm Sunday as we celebrate it now, what follows is the only public display that Jesus permitted in all his time on earth. This is the only time in which he participated in anything close to a public display, like a parade or or anything of that sort. He's going to proceed into the city through the East Gate amidst crowds, both before and after him, declaring him to be Messiah, riding the colt, riding the donkey. This is one of those rare moments in which all four gospel writers capture the scene. This is one of very few in which all four record it. The next day of these events is the Sunday they enter into Jerusalem, the next day. This is traditionally the start of preparations for the Feast of Passover in that week. The reason is because the law required that families in preparation for the Passover sacrifice take a young a three-year-old lamb into their home, The lamb would be inspected for three days in the home. They literally brought the lamb in, and it was in the family's home for three days. And it was there so they could inspect it to ensure it was spotless. That was what the law required. Of course, during that time, the family also established a bit of a bond with this animal, knowing that they're soon going to take its life. All of those details are part of a picture of the sacrifice of Christ in the Passover. Three days before he is crucified, he enters the city, the city of David, and it goes directly to the temple, the house of God. So the Lamb of God goes into the home of his father. As we'll study later, then he's going to be inspected for three days while he's in the home by Pharisees and the like. And then at the conclusion of that inspection process, of course, he goes to the cross. We'll, we'll come back to all of that. But on this day, Jesus is seen entering the city. So this is the day of the week of Passover when families were bringing lambs into their home. And he comes in on a donkey as they throw palm branches onto the ground in front of him. So the donkey's walking on the palm branches on the ground. This is done in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, in which he says, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why are they throwing palm branches on the ground? Well, the palm was the national symbol in Israel. It was inscribed even on coins that were made during the rebellion against the Romans in AD 66 through AD 70. When they started minting new coins, they put the palm branch on the coin. So a large crowd in Israel waving palm branches was a provocative act of defiance against Roman rule. That would be like a nation resurrecting a flag that had been banned by their oppressors and waving the flag. So this is an act, that was intended to send the message that here comes our king to establish our kingdom in opposition to the Roman authorities. The crowd is shouting at the same time, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This statement is a messianic declaration from Psalm 118. At the three feasts that the Jews attended in Jerusalem, there was always this moment when they would recite something called the Hallel. The Hallel is Psalms 113 through 118, recited all the way through. Psalm 118 at the end of the Hallel was written originally to coronate David as king. And the Jews understood it throughout their history as being prophetically a psalm that spoke of the Messiah entering Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. So as Jesus enters the city, what the crowd is doing is they're declaring by singing this part of the Hallel, they're declaring, here comes our Messiah, because Psalm 18 is said to represent the Messiah's entry into the kingdom. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus says this in response to Israel's rejection of him. When the leaders of Israel reject his authority and they say that he does his miracles by the power of Satan, Beelzebub, rather than by the spirit. Jesus responds to that statement saying this, Luke 13, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often. I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What he told the people of Israel in that moment was that their formal rejection of him as Messiah meant dire consequences for them, for this generation of Israel and for the nation. They had committed the unforgivable sin, and as a result, they had no rescue at this point. Furthermore, the entire city, he says, of Jerusalem is going to be made desolate as a judgment against the nation in this generation for the rejection of the Messiah. Then he ends by saying, you will not have a second chance to receive me as your Messiah until you embrace me as Messiah first. In other words, I'll only come back to you when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus. Jesus. The nation must acknowledge Jesus to be Messiah before Jesus will come back. That is the moment we're waiting for, for the second coming of Christ, not for the coming to the church, but for Jesus's second coming to set up the kingdom. Once Israel makes that acknowledgement, then he returns Zechariah 12, by the way, is the place you go to read about what that return looks like. So in this moment, the crowd expects the fulfillment of Psalm 118 to take place. They think In this moment, they're watching the fulfillment of that psalm, their Messiah, coming in to set up the kingdom. So they sing the Hallel. Right idea, wrong timing. They declare the psalm in expectation, but they are off. They should have paid closer attention to the context of Zechariah 9. That chapter describes a humble arrival of the Messiah on a donkey, yes. But then it goes later, as you keep going down chapter 9, it then moves to talking about a second triumphant arrival, like lightning streaking across the sky. You can't have both in the same moment. They're absolutely diametrically opposed. And that's because there's two comings of the Messiah, and they're watching the first. The second is when the kingdom is set up. So the crowd is not the only one to misunderstand the circumstances. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. John, I love this, speaks retrospectively. He notes here that he and the rest of the disciples were oblivious about all of this stuff as it actually happened. Only after the resurrection did they look back and recognize, oh, That was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. I think John's statement may be his best efforts to explain in advance of what he's going to tell us for why all the disciples fled Jesus at his crucifixion and yet later became his strongest representatives. Their behavior in the midst of the turmoil of Passover is explainable as ignorance and fear now. And their contrary behavior following Jesus's resurrection in the face of similar threats and similar persecution is proof that their understanding had changed. And what changed between those two moments? Their understanding of Scripture, their understanding of the Old Testament. They were able to act in courage and in conviction because they knew that what Jesus had experienced was part of a plan that God said beforehand would come. And it gave them confidence that they were seeing God's program play out, not some plan fall apart. It's a reminder that the power of God's word is to make explainable circumstances that are otherwise unexplainable and to give fuel to the fire to serve God in the midst of persecution when we might otherwise see that as a reason to second guess why we're doing what we're doing. The crowd, on the other hand, is fueled by what? Signs and wonders. John says that this crowd is following Jesus. Why? Because of what they've seen. So look at the contrast. The disciples become fervent followers of Jesus following his death and resurrection because of what they've heard, because of the word of God. The crowds, on the other hand, are fickle. They follow him now for what they've seen. But it's only going to be a few days from now when these very same people are going to be calling for Barabbas to be freed instead of Jesus, a murderer instead of Jesus. Why? Because what they have is tenuous. It's based on signs and wonders and emotion and affection. It's not based on the word of God. It's not grounded in anything. And I think John gives us this insight as we move out of his opening lines of chapter 12 to explain what's about to happen with the affections of both the crowd and the disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we serve a God who is worthy of all our affection worthy of all our sacrifice, who will repay us many times more in the kingdom for anything that is lost now and and more than we can imagine. And I thank you, Father, for the courage that comes from knowing your word and from seeing things with eyes for eternity. And I pray, Father, we would always live according to what we know. And, Father, I lastly ask that we would have a heart for those who are in need, whether the poor, whether the abused, whether those who are victims of one tragedy or another but father i would also ask that we would keep those things in the priority they deserve which is that in all we do the gospel comes first and the soul is more important than the body let us serve both but never one at the expense of the other we ask these things father in jesus name amen